Right, Mavis, welcome to episode five of These Little Victories with myself, Jay Fender. Before I go on, I want to let you know that my band, Affleck's Palace, are going to be touring the UK in May 2024. The tour visits some iconic venues. We're going to be going to Tunnels in Aberdeen, Stereo in Glasgow, the Clooney in Newcastle, a venue I love. The burgers there are sensational. Uh, we're going to be doing Band on the Wall in Manchester, the Lead Mill in Sheffield, Bodega in Nottingham, the Black Prince in Northampton, O'Meara in London, and Strange Brew in Bristol. It's going to be a sensational run. We really hope you can join us for some of those shows. Tickets are on sale right now. Today's guest is Andy Bell, one of the founding members of seminal shoegaze band Ride. Andy also played bass in Oasis from 1999 until they split up in 2009, and he has an electronica project on the go called Glock. Uh, Glock are going to be going out on tour as well in October. Tickets and information are going to be in the description below this video or pod. So make sure you get your tickets now. Anyway, that's all from me. Enjoy the podcast. I know you're going to, and I'll see you on the next one. Cheers. don't want it only to be about just music musicians even yeah. i feel like that's where i'm comfortable talking about you know production and history of music and you know and 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 people's journey and how they got signed and where they recorded the demos and everything but when you come across someone like tim who's you can't you know, turn it down no 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 i i was just like i've got it even if it doesn't get outrageous traction you know it needs to be documented because yeah. you know the horizon for tim is in sight He's 91. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, yeah. and and even though he's been given the opportunity to talk about his book, he, the documentary was called First Overland. And um, he he's, he's revisited that. He wrote a book about it, but and people just want to talk about that. And I think, and he was in the Navy. He was a Marine in like the, uh, when was it? Would have been early 50s. And before that, in the 40s, when he went to Australia, he was like, at school with Rupert Murdoch, his father died in the Navy because their ship was sunk in 1940. Yeah. And he's, he knows all about that, and he's talking, and there's only, there's only what some... a life, man. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, my grandmother died at the age of 104. What? And yeah, yeah, she lived to, to a ripe old age. And um, when I when she was quite near the end, as a couple of times I went down to stay with her and just sort of chat with her and just sort of, you know, just in case it happens... That week, I would have seen her. Yeah, and part of that time, I recorded recorded us chatting, and she was she was pretty deaf, so I'll be writing stuff down. Right, um, and and then <clears throat> asking her about stuff, but I knew anyway that she had seen the Hindenburg's airships and stuff because she was born in nineteen fourteen. Wow. Um, so she'd you know, was born during the First World War and seen airships. That, All that stuff, it, you know, not. not they're called Zeppelins, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, the Hindenburg was the famous one that went down, but she yeah. saw Zeppelins, basically. Um, where where was she living? Where was she from? She was, well, she um, lived in Exeter, Devon. Sort oh, of okay, yeah, okay. West Country. Yeah, nice. Yeah. My, one of my old neighbours, Polish fella called Tadeusz, um, I'd see him, you know, walking about and stuff. When I, I lived in West London a few years ago, he was one of my neighbours. And I'd just go up and check on him. You know, I just, you know, because we talked and I just yeah. nip up for a coffee. How are you doing? Because, you know, people get 
he didn't have any family. Yeah. People get lonely. And um, I remember going up and he was telling me about how he escaped Poland just as the Nazis invaded. He would have been wow. a small boy. People were basically just going, right, we've got to go. Well, he, he got out because a, a Ger- he spoke fluent German. His mother was German. His father was Polish. Um, so he's bilingual and he could just fit in in Germany mm. um, unnoticed. But he, I remember talking to him about, he wouldn't give me too much information about the things he'd seen. But I remember he said towards the end of the war, he was he was part of some Polish resistance, like um, as a young lad, like 15, 16. Yeah. And wherever, wherever he was based, a train pulled up into the station, Nazi officers got off, and Hitler walked right past him. Oof. And I was just like, what was that like? Yeah. Because he's like... He's like the world's monster. Yeah. He's, he's almost like a, 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 a fictitious monster. Like, you know, he's just so, you can't even... Completely. Yeah, and, and, and he's walked past him. And I was like, what did he look like? That's was he wild. That is wild. Yeah. That's why I thought, and, I, and he was like, it was towards the end of the war. He looked disheveled. Yeah. He was coming to assess damage f- the, from, from a bombing raid from the Allies yeah. on one of the train lines. And I was just like... That is mental. It was coming to an end. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah, it, you know, it's interesting to get into um, talking ba- to talking to old people. Yeah, and seeing what they have to say. Yeah. Because people yeah. just look at the future and like our and uh, modernism and and technology and they kind of very true struggle to you know forget to explore the past when whilst it's there. There's a lot to a lot to learn, isn't there? When the when the printing press came along. I heard a quote someone outraged about the printing press was it could have been someone talking about the internet or streaming services or something. It's like it's going to ruin so many people's livelihoods, and yeah, you, know, you just kind of realise, oh well, these things are never really new. Yeah, it's just new technology comes along and how it's and, presented. Uh, yeah, how it's presented, how you deal with it, how you adapt to it. Absolutely, you know, it's the same. I guess there's a similar kind of trajectory how music is released. It's it's always been about narrative in press. And it's mm. still about narrative it, it, digitally. How you um, um, not entice, but bring people into what you're doing. You know, it's spun on where you're from, how you talk, you know, your backstory. And whether you pre- present that in an interview in the NME in 1990, or whether you are yeah. doing some sort of kind of like a podcast like this, or whether you are, kind of, you know, giving narrative to, a gig that you're doing today at a festival. It's yeah. all about that, you know, how, how the story kind of um, invites really, people in. You're really allowing people to get to know you, isn't it? That's really what it is. That's it. And once they do, they can make a judgment on whether they, they think it makes the music more or less interesting. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. we yeah. You mentioned the enemy and stuff, which is the primary way for people of my generation to get into or learn about these artists. Absolutely. Um, but now it's almost more instant. It's actually better, right, in some ways, because you're seeing someone's so, like socials. You're getting a feel for them. You know, you absolutely and you there's get an immediate feel for someone. And 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 it's not um, edited or diluted. Well, the, the the content might be edited and it is to project, but it's normally by 
the artist who's do, you know they yeah. have control over it it's, you're not going to be misquoted what you put out is yeah for better or worse yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's interesting that um we now have our own conduit to take our art to the world you've like, got to see the positive sides you really have otherwise you'll just get you just get bitter yeah you know you've got to adapt to things changing I agree. I, yeah. I, I was reading um, oh, a book by a, a fellow who used to write for, uh, I think it was Kerrang, and and then he did some freelance bits, and I can't remember what his book is called. I'll put it in the description below this podcast. It's just evaded me. Um, but, you know, he he's basically saying that they were the gatekeepers to breaking bands, and their taste or their mood or how they reviewed something yeah. could make or break a you know an artist. Whereas now it feels a, l- a little bit more met- uh, meritocratic. Yeah. In in so yeah. much as you you can take your music to the world, you might not get a write up. And to be honest, even if you do get a write up, I'm not sure how valuable that is. There's more value in being able to. You know. Well, these days the the, I guess you call it the. Not really print media, but it's like the the blo- the music blogs, music sites will will get will print anything you give them. Basically, when I get press, it's basically ninety percent of the time it is what my press officer has written. Yes, the press release. Yeah, it's the press release, and I'm sure you've noticed the same thing. Absolutely. This groundbreaking news suddenly every, everyone's saying it's groundbreaking. You know, yeah. so whatever you decide to say about yourself is like it or your press officer says about you. Yeah, yeah. Just get repeated by everybody. Which is it's it's quite strange that that um, like TV gets written about a lot, and you know Netflix is massive, and talk shows are always you know seem to invite actors on, but musicians seem to have in print press and in um, television media seem to have been I don't know not ostracized, but like yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Like, there used to be used to be some good music programs on telly. Um, and now there's just not that. It's not really going on, is it? No, it's, uh, I, I heard the other day that on Jules Holland, the average listening age of the Jules Holland is sixty nine. I'm like, mm. that is crazy, you know. That's and that, the, that, that's the hardcore residue of people that are still with it. Yeah, um, I guess from when it started. Which is a shame. Yeah. I love Jules Holland. Yeah, and and I love seeing the bands on it, and it's almost it almost documents certain eras. With great performances and all that kind of stuff, but now, I mean, Affleck's Palace, we're, we were trying to get a slot on there. It's very difficult for independent bands to get on there unless you are yeah. firing. Um, we we just missed out on this last album, and I was, you know, really hoping to get on it. But then when I, what was the tune you were going to get on? Uh, we were, I think we were pitching "Dancing Is Not a Crime." Yeah, yeah, um, something upbeat and live. It just seems to take on a. a it's it's a lot heavier and and there's a um i've got to come and see you lot i'm 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 a fan of your band oh well thank um, you especially your guitarist dan dan, dan. dan stapleton yeah special. yeah special he's outrageous guitarist yeah man. yeah he's unreal beautiful melodic guitarist yeah, yeah. he's the, the thing with dan everybody says their bands are the best well we i don't think Affleck's palace are the best but the musicians that i've been fortunate to work with some exceptional musicians ace guitarists um and the thing with dan is technically 
he's 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 never really at the ceiling of his ability. Technically, he's extremely dexterous, and um, but he never overcomplicates things. Mm-hmm. He, he he he's always quite honest to, uh, to the song, and is he's always about the composition over showing off, which is rare in people that are almost virtuoso on their instrument. They kind of want to show you how good they are and how yeah. much time they well, put no, into it. The thing is, it's taste. Yeah. You, you don't need that much talent, um, and you can start with you can start with potential, as long as you got taste. Well, that that's the hard thing, isn't it? You know, like <laughs> if, you got, if, you, if you've got bad taste in music or the wrong taste, or just sort of like if if it's, if you are, I mean, that comes that showing off thing comes into that. Yeah. If you know that it's not going to be cool to show up, you know, to, to do that showy thing that you that part of you might want to do, if you can just hold back. And just do the right thing at the right time, but, but yeah. knowing what the right thing is—that's the hard bit. Well, but you, you don't need to be that technical to do. Then I wasn't. I mean, I I was not a technical guitarist. I never have been. Yeah, um, I'm self-taught. So, grew up, you know, just it all came very gradually, and I'd sort of learn one chord at a time, one little lick at a time. So it's, people would always teach me a new thing. Like, yeah. on, on the second album that Ride did, um, our producer Alan Mulder taught me to do string bending really because when i first got a, a deal i bought a rickenbacker 12 string right and you can't there's no way you're going to bend that string it's all yeah. it's all about a bit like dance style melodic johnny marr george harrison partial yeah. chords and nice melody riffs and stuff which is what ride was built on like a rosy thing yeah, yeah 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 um then i started to get friendly with graham coxon who was um when blur was just starting out okay um, I was a big fan of them and uh, used to talk to Graham about guitars and so how do you get that bendy sort of elastic sort of, you know, guitar riffs going? I said, well, you never do it on a Ricky, you need to get a Les Paul. Right. Um, so I got myself a Les Paul and realised that you could bend the strings around and stuff and then was talking about this to the producer, Alan Mulder. He was like, well, you like Hendrix, don't you? This is his trick. And the, the, well, yeah. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Is it highway? Anyway, that Hendrix style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I just used that all over that second ride album. Yeah, <laughs> that was my new trick. And then when I got a, got a wah wah at some point, and that became an obsession for a few months until the band had to have to do an intervention and say, "Look, <laughs> we know that you love your wah pedal, <laughs> but chill on the wah because <laughs> not every tune needs, needs it all the way wah. through." <laughs> Literally intervention time, you know. What pedals were you using when you were went in with Alan Mulder? Did, did that? Did that? Um, um... Well, that's second album era. Um, we were doing a lot of the the guitar stuff in the control room. So, okay. Um, in terms of pedals that I had, starting off, I'll take you through the whole story. Then, yeah. um, I always had uh, combo amps in the beginning. Yeah. And I had a couple that were just really rubbish ones, and then I got myself a Vox. But it was a transistor Vox. I didn't know the difference between different Voxes. So okay. the one I got was a transistor, which I should have got an AC30, but AC, I got, yeah. um, I think it was called a Vox 100. Okay. Super loud combo. Right. And um, had that for a bit and then swapped it out for a Marshall eventually. I right. Finally got the right idea. And Was that a combo or was it a stack? I got a, a Marshall cab with a high watt head. Ah. That was the combination that I'd heard that Pete Townsend had. Right. In the early Who. Yeah, so it's kind of the idea being that it's sort of a bit cleaner than a Marshall stack. 
Yeah. I didn't want to be too rock. I didn't want the distortion to be coming from the amp. I wanted it to be coming from the pedals. Right. So the combination went into when we did the debut ride album was that Marshall Cab, High Watt Head, and then we got these Roland GP16s that were like effect rack units that were programmable. Right. So you could just put in any amount of the compression, distortion, delays, reverbs and stuff and build the sound, chorus, all that phase, all, the, all your main sounds all um, in the box, so to speak. Did you take that on tour with you there? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It had a f- it, you could just program in the things, give them a title and then put them over a pedal board that had like eight switches. Okay. You know, so I, I, made, I think I had them over one, one bank, so I wasn't going between different... It wasn't too complicated. It was yeah. just like eight switches. Yeah. And um, then on top of that, I had the wah, my beloved wah, and um, another distortion, but nothing too crazy. Okay. Nothing too crazy in the ride days. Yeah. There was this gig. We did a gig at Amsterdam once, and um, the effects never turned up. Uh. And I was so devastated. I'm like, this gig can't, there's no way this gig can, it's, it's going to ruin the gig. There's no way. Like, cancel it. And, and I got persuaded to do the gig anyway. To me, it was like, there's no value in this gig. There's it's no like pay- going on naked. No yeah. It's just like, there's no point. People yeah. are going to be getting the money back. It's going to end the band. You know, like, but um, no, we did it and it was fine. You know, no one really noticed. No. But I always felt that that was an integral part of the sound. The sound, yeah. I found live a lot of people don't pick up on mistakes or, you know, yeah. sound or, you know, the, but when, when, when young bands are playing, they get so nervous about making that error. And I'm just like, you get so wound up in your own little world that you think that it's the only thing people are caring about. That's right. You know, and to be honest, they're living their lives. The reason that they remember gigs 20 years ago is not because of the music so much as that was the night they met their future wife or that was that night when that mad thing happened or, you Absolutely. know, like, or, or if anything about the gig, it's usually the memorable, memorable gigs are, remember they had to stop the song and do it again because they fucked it up, you know, it's like that kind of thing. Absol- that's what yeah. sticks in your mind. It's not like the band playing a perfect gig absolutely and it's, it, that's what differentiates the live experience from the recorded experience yeah. is those kind of yeah you know errors live the sound not being quite right yeah the the the, the, the moments of the evening that's well i'm playing through a broken hand at the moment oh. um so i've only got three working fingers and i've started doing gigs with only two really because the third one was still really pretty sore it couldn't quite you know you, so, you pl- so do you how do you do that then but you're barring stuff for like you can't do bar chords. I just had you? to rethink the f- the way I um, place my fingers on in, on the strings for. So so you can only use these two. Well, I was a little bit of the third one, but it, okay. was, it was easier to do it on mainly on the first two, which is just a lot of a lot of rethinking in the moment. Yeah, and there's a two or three songs where it was it seemed to be pretty vital, um, and strangely enough, some of the best ride songs, Vapor Trail, yeah, Cool Your Boots, and one or two more. Where I just because they're four fingered chords, just couldn't do them. But then I re- then I kind of just reworked them. Thought well, I'll play it down the neck, where I can reach the three fingers onto. Yeah, and yeah, you know, it's not the same. Those c- songs sound a bit different at the moment this summer. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. But but it's fine. It's How'd you fine. break your the, hand? The, 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 I was on holiday in Mallorca and just messing about and just a random silly injury. Right. You know. Um, it can happen at any point. It's not the sort of thing you could you could like guard yourself against because then I w- then I wouldn't go out. Yeah, you know? of course. But to something so little, it's really 
I've really done a number on myself. Yeah. But um, I've already, already gained in confidence. I've done two gigs now. I, luckily, it wasn't too much of a busy period. Like one gig, then a week, then another gig, like this last weekend. Sure. One more next weekend or, the you know, about a week from now. Um, and each one gets easier. Right. Yeah. Yeah. James Yates, the guitarist in Pastel. Oh, yeah, Pastel, yeah. This is one of their new T-shirts that they'll be yeah. taking out on tour. But nice. um, he... Mushroom heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they... Um, he was he was playing 11 aside Sunday League and he's broken his ankle. Oh, uh, yeah. Just before he's about to go out on tour. And he was like, oh, it's going to be pretty bad. And then yeah, I think it's starting to dawn on him that, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a real fucking headache because your ankle's so complicated. And it, uh, he did. He, 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 two guys just went for the ball, kicked the ball at the same time, and he's come off worse, and it's broken his ankle. Yeah. Well, this is a goalkeeping injury, really. It's just a jar to the finger. So when you know, when you if you're in goal, I mean, I play in the garden with my kid. Yeah. Um, and sometimes he fires a ball at me that's pretty bang, um, and it, it just kind of jars it, and you just go, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that basically yeah. it's that it's that impact but um but yeah the, i mean ankle that's complicated isn't it yeah it is and the ligaments around it and all that kind of stuff and i've just been like i've just been saying to the band like we've got a pretty important talk coming up it's sold but out he, you know he can sit down right yeah is that but, what he's but he to wants do? to stand up is yeah, it, he yeah, wants yeah. To, <laughs> I mean, I, when i was about 14 i went to see Susie and the banshees oh cool one of the first gigs i saw and she was sat on a stool because uh, told me not to slouch. I'm ah, that's all right. Terrible I can posture. see you on this monitor here. So. You can see me. That's all right then. Not just the, not just the hair. Yeah, no, no. It's all good. <laughs> it's all good. You're you're looking um, great. But yeah, Susie and the Banshees played Oxford, and it was eighty three, eighty four time. And she was sat on a stool with a with a whole leg in plaster. Oh gosh. Yeah, but she was a trooper and did the whole the whole tour like that. I saw that Julian Casablancas from the Strokes headlined Reading Festival and Leeds Festival. Yeah. With a on a stool, yeah, yeah, and uh, and then Jack White came on to play a solo, and they didn't even turn his guitar on. Like <laughs> he's just sitting the stool. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> in fact, do you do you know Danny Yates? Because when you were in Oasis, uh, Danny Yates just before you joined, yeah, uh, he he was kind of like security for him. Big name rings a bell. I don't think he was security while I was in the band. Ah, okay. Um, He's looking that after Noel now. Oh yeah, and he, um, yeah, he he was he was doing security for and tour managing for the Strokes. Yeah, and I remember he was like, he's he's this Cockney geezer, West Ham fan, hard, and he and he and he, he said, oh, what do you think of Jack White coming on fucking hell? I like his guitar. What a geezer! He's like, you're joking. You know, he's just like, I couldn't hear his guitar on one of the songs. But yeah, he was Julian was on on there. Uh, on crutches and on a, on a stool. I think it took away from his experience. In fact, the, the, the guy who I mentioned earlier, Ross, who sings in Symposium, mm-hmm. he supported No Doubt at Brixton Academy back in the mid-90s before it properly popped off, and he broke his leg on stage. Oh, man. And, was, and then he played, you know... I was, mean, you've all done it. <laughs> you've all done those sort of little accidents. Like our singer, Mark Gardner, um, once did that thing of walking into a hole or walking off, just walking straight off the stage, you know, not, not seeing what was going on. So easy to do. Probably had shades on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like, just went like, where's he gone? Oh, he's gone down that hole. Shit, are you all right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, nothing's happened to me that where I've broken a bone until now. Right, yeah. you've been lucky. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you actually. So with your with Glock and um, your your solo projects, well, I think they're solo. Is, is Glock just you, just yeah. recording? And and do you produce it all yourself and mix it all yourself, or do you mm -hmm. do you collaborate with anybody else? Or um, most of it is done all on my own. And then on the second Glock record, um, I had some help mixing because um, I just got a bit bogged down in it. And we did a few days over. Um, over the internet because it was locked down. Okay. So I had a guy called Leaf that's um He's a producer, isn't he? Leaf Troop. Yeah. Yeah, well his brother Will um run part runs the label. So Glock's label is called Bites. It's run by Will Troop and Joe Clay. Okay. And Leaf's Will's brother, he's an engineer. I think he works with Coldplay quite a lot. Okay. At the moment, which is what he did after he's been working with, with me. Um otherwise I wouldn't have ever got him. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> before that um so yeah we did some it was via this thing called audio movers do you know what that is no i don't if you've got to do remote mixing um someone can be in a studio and they're, so they're like in the real recording studio or the mixing studio and if you're if you plug into audio movers then you can be at home and hear the same sound coming through your home speakers right so i was on headphones hearing the studio quality sound you can say all right so take that down in the mix and do this and do that and you're hearing it in in real time happening wow so you've got your phone there on a sort of like a um, um facetime right you're chatting to them on the facetime yeah and you're going right do this do that or try this and um trying different things and yeah. you're hearing it all perfectly in on your own headphones at home that's outrageous yeah so you don't have to I, I would do that not even in lockdown i do that now you know it's yeah. brilliant What's it? Sorry, what's it called again? Audio movers. Audio movers. Okay. Yeah, and it's like WAV quality. Wow. Yeah. I'm gonna have to look into that for mixing mm. with stuff I do because it's yeah. getting over to the studio. It can just be it's so. T it sounds like a real time saver. Mm. Um, and with the Glock stuff, are you so? Uh, what 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 um software are you using to record it? And you know, what's your um, process there? I do it on a laptop, um, using Logic. Logic yeah. Pro. Okay, great. Um, do you do you use any? Because um, because some of the on um, pattern recognition when I was listening to it, uh, the the synth they sound quite modular sounding. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like to me that the uh, influence wise, it, it kind of takes from a little bit like the. Do you know Luke Abbott or uh, John Hopkins or? I know John Hopkins a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so it's kind of like these warm. Um, yeah. Rival consoles esque kind of synth sounds, which was why I thought because um, you might be using modular stuff, but is it all in the box? It's all via Logic, is it, or have you got any kind of um, external plug? Oh, I've got a, I've got a lot of everything really. So yeah, there is some modular. Mm -hmm. um, there's some analog synths, like um, when when BDI did an album with Dave Sitek. Oh yeah. And that was here, actually. In Rich are, we, are we in Richmond right now? Uh, near Richmond. Barnes, Barnes, yeah. But near Richmond. Richmond I know it was like, I came over the bridge and it was like, welcome to Richmond or the borough. The of borough Richmond. of Richmond, yeah. yeah. So we did an album um, in Richmond at the studio called State of the Art. And um, Dave Sitek produced it. And he came over from America with a ton of gear, including a Yamaha CS5 monosynth, which okay. was just really good for... He was into a lot of like drones and long notes and bass, you know, using it for like 
base drones and stuff. Sure. Um, so after that session, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of outboard gear that he brought over. I ended up getting. He was the first person to to bring in a, um, you know, even tied, did the stomp boxes of the, you know, the space one. Yeah. And the time factor, which is like a reverb and a delay. But these are basically extrapolations of the H3000. Okay. Um, which is a bit of a 90s legend. Right. It's a, a rack unit um, by Eventide. And the H3000 was what I was using with Alan Mulder. Like you were saying, the guitar sounds on Second Ride album, Going Blank Again. Yeah. That was a lot of the stuff was being done in the control room. So Alan and me were working on this stuff in, in the control room together. Yeah. Um, a lot of the, re- the it's um, reverbs that modulate. So right. reverbs that, that do stuff within the, the reverb, like they, they sound chorusy within the reverb and change and develop and have tails that sort of, you know, do pitch stuff. Okay. Um, that's all coming from the H3000. And now when these pedals, they start to make them, make them as guitar pedals, I really related to them because I recognised all the sounds. That's, that's like the ride sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, where was I? Yeah, so... So you were with Dave Sitek, he brought these synths over that you ended up... off, yeah. That. So up until that point, I'd been mainly guitars, amps, pedals. Yeah. Um, he started to get me branching out into synths as well. Okay. This is like 2012. Yeah. And um, also um, my brother-in-law... Arvin, DJ, um, dance musician, sort of dance producer, really. Um, I asked him, what, if I'm going to get a synth, what synth, what synth would you recommend that I get? Yeah. Um, knowing what music I'm into, you know, and stuff. He said, yeah. get, an, um, get a Roland SH-101. Okay. It's another mono synth, um, but it's just got, he was like, you know, the, the, the stuff he was doing at the time, is like, we'd, we'd never do a track without using the SH-101. Okay. And does so, that does that inform your composition process wi- within the Glock sphere? As in, you start with a beat, or do you start like when you're kind of composing? Do you just kind of mel- melody within the synth well, on a, on a piano roll using a synth, and then manipulate that, and then put a beat around it? Or how you know what's your workflow on that? Yeah, all those kind of things really. Um, it just this is the process I'm describing is is how I started to open up the palette. Yeah, m- past guitars. Yeah, absolutely, and realized that. All right, so when Sitek was working with us, it was a guitar band, but he was using all these synths and all this other stuff and putting putting the band through a guitar pedal or putting the synths through distortion or putting, you know, I don't know, just, just ev- everything could go into anything. So it was a, a re- um, trying to create a really nice sound palette. Yeah, which is really free. Yeah. Really, really free. Um, and I was like, I'm having a bit of this. I need something new to spend money on, you know. So um, I started getting into synths. So so started to, to get these mono synths um, started to use them to make soundscapes, um, and at the same time, I was moving forward from Garage Band because I've started off making. I'm not technical. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm um, not. Eighties, nineties. I was on four track, um, which is which is sort of the culture at the time. Um, four track cassette to make demos. Yeah. And then from there, I, I did a couple of things where I would sort of got something like a glorified four track. There was a thing called an ADAT. Um, I think it was called an ADAT. I had for a while and it took like videotapes right. and then um, moved on from that to st- when GarageBand came out I started using that yeah on the, on the Mac on the Mac yeah um, which is a piece of re- recording software that is basically for, for anybody that isn't aware of that who's yeah. listening it's like um, 
not a simple but a, a user friendly uh, piece of recording software with that Mac uh, Apple uh, put onto their Macs. So it exactly, didn't yeah. it didn't limit your workflow when you were trying to write things and record them into the computer because I think that pre pre, pre garage band and logic like when people were using um pro tools and like all these other pieces of software i feel like it artists were less um inclined to say i'm going to record this myself whereas it when apple came out with these other pieces of it, these interfaces that were mm. far more user friendly and didn't you know wasn't super complex to get your ideas down it kind of revolutionized the way home recordings worked and, and garage band what you're talking it about did, is that? Yeah, indeed, yeah yeah i mean it was all it was the next natural step for me mm. um but i think for a lot of people it was the, it was the first step it was like wow this is possible that's amazing you know yeah. it, it revolutionized it like we're saying you know this is one of the good things about technology changing so much since since computers and the internet came out it's just the the accessibility mm. of recording multi-track, you know, music. Um, so yeah, from four tracks, eight tracks, whatever it was, I was using before that. GarageBand was the next thing, and I was using it like a tape machine, mm. and that was fine. Um, and then I was on a on a tr on a train. I think I was in Japan with with BDI, um, Jeff Wooten era. So okay. the first album, tour. okay. And Jeff, who was like twenty one or something was sat next to me on the train going is that garage band you're using and I was like yeah thinking I was pretty cool and he yeah. was like why are you using a kids program to yeah. make music and I was like what do you mean kids program <laughs> he's like well you know garage band that's for babies you know you want to be using logic which is and he explained it you know logic is the real one yeah 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 uh, yeah garage band is your starter one and, and and yeah it's great it is great and you can work with it fine um, some of the stuff on my first solo album was back from that period. So, like that song Skywalker, that started off as a garage band demo. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, he said, get Logic, get Logic. And it was at the time it was Logic 8 or 9. So I switched okay. over to Logic. It was pretty simple. It was like garage band, but just a bit more. There's instead of being all bright colors, it was sort of, you know, gray. You know, a bit more mature. A bit more mature, grown up. Um, so I, I started using that. And then um, they brought out a new Logic, which is Logic X. X, yeah. And I thought, oh yeah, I'll download that, upgrade, and get get that on the computer, and that'll be make it even better. But as soon as it came on, I just had no idea what was going on. I did the things I was doing before, and nothing was happening. It was just, it was just sort of it was just suddenly nothing worked, and it was all really confusing. So well, the, the 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 where all the kind of shortcut keys that had changed and and you had to relearn the kind of mapping of where you wanted to if you wanted to automate something from Logic Nine to Ten or X, yeah. it was it was very confusing as a producer. You were like, why have they done this? I want to use yeah. Nine again. Go back. I know, but what it exposed is just that I really hadn't ever learned any of the potential of Nine apart from just the record, you know, like. Enable that track to record, record it, yeah, and then play it back and get the next track in. I was really basic, and all that stuff was just be now beyond me. So I thought I need to just learn this properly. So, um, ended up signing up to a and and, and this is the other thing about it. This is when Gem had his head injury, so we were um, off off the road. Um, Gem Archer, who was the guitarist in BDI, um, was was taken out out of action for. I guess it was uh, like six months by um, a pretty bad head injury. Right. 
Um, so we were kind of just waiting, not waiting around, but we were just sort of taking a break kind of while he recovered. Okay. Um, and during that period, I, I decided to start going to classes to learn logic properly. Okay. And I was like, right, I'm not sure whether this is going to be just really annoying and they're just going to try and make, you know, because um, I knew logic had all that stuff about automatic instruments. Right. Um, you know, it had the play along with a fake drummer, play along with a... F- oh, right. You okay. know, those... Y- what is in like a you, yeah you could basically set a, a sample where you could just drag a like do you mean a drum kit into the session and yeah, then you can play can. along with it instead yeah 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 yeah, yeah so it, they kind of advertised it a little bit like that was the salute that was what they were going for okay um, I see what you mean so yeah, I wasn't yeah. quite sure if it was going to really fit me to learn yeah. this stuff or whether it was going to be any use but I came there and the first thing that we did was <clears throat> and, and that was really really good it's called sub bass. I don't know if they're still teaching, but okay. Subbase do a really good course for people that are not technical okay. to get into logic and really understand it. Right. And it started off with a few weeks just working a sampler. But within that within that time, I learned how to sample properly. Right. Um, and from there, it moved on to teaching us how compression works, which I've never been taught that in my life. Like, right. I always knew that a compressor pedal made my guitar louder. Yeah. And if everything was turned all the way to the right, it was about right. You know, and so I used compression without knowing what it was. It, I saw it as a sort of like a clean boost. Yeah, you're right, but, yeah. But what it does is not exactly that, you know. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. All kind of, you know, the ratios are important and without getting too... I still don't really understand it. Yeah. But they taught me and then for about a week or two, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. But it did. it was important. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, and it did. Then it opened up um, synthesis as well to me, explaining what an envelope is. Okay. Um, the attack, uh, decay, sustain, release, which you get on the sliders on the SH-101. So I was like, oh, this synth I've got now, I understand it. Of course. I can make a, a note um, have a kind of a shape rather than just being like a dung. You can sort of make it fade up. If you want it to carry on longer, you can do that. So you can ha- start to have control over your sound. So yeah. this was all happening at the same time. So um, over the... The next couple of years, I started to expand and get into modular synths and started to learn, understand logic. And, and I really will say that the logic soft synths and um, the onboard stuff they have is brilliant. Yeah. The onboard plugins are great. You don't really need to have expensive plugins. Nope. You've got a laptop with logic on it. You're pretty much set to go. Because you can manipulate the sounds within the, within yeah. the box, basically, to, to kind of... F- almost fabricate the sound that you want, and it's yeah. If I, if I thought it was a bit too boxy, I would um, kind of you know d- put the synth part down, and then burn a CD of it, and then put that through my decks, my DJ decks, right? Play it through my guitar rig, you really? Know, those kind of things. Yeah, I do that that's, a lot. That's fantastic. Yeah, I do that on my remixes a lot. You know, I'll do, I'll just record anything out that feels a bit too much, like it's a you know just a, a preset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, a preset, Just yeah. start running it through everything else. Um, yeah, inspired originally by Dave Sittick, I guess, you know, the right. way that he approached it all was so you can do anything. Yeah. It doesn't matter what quality your your original sound is, whether it's an MP3 or a WAV or whatever it is, you can just do whatever. Well, when I first started using Logic, I was doing an Electronica project and I didn't know how to use an audio interface to connect a condenser mic that needed phantom power to record into the 
box and I was like can you see my eyes glazing over <laughs> like, what did you just say no oh, I think I, so, phantom so power is like the button you press that's like you, on an audio interface phantom power yeah. you push it and it just means the microphone's powered yeah it's, that's because it. some mics have Instead power of, in them. And that's don't. right, and some yeah. don't require phantom power. But when you're using a condenser mic, some of them do require it. And basically, yeah. the audio interface is just the the the, con, uh, the, 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 the the bit that processes the audio before it goes into the laptop. The but, ones that don't have it are haunted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, carry on. But, in, uh, but no, but I, I was just like, well, I don't know how to do that, so I'm going to use the I'm going to use the microphone on the Mac. And I, was, and I was recording at like one in the morning in my front room on the sideboard, like recording into this microphone, like singing this quite kind of uh, intricate, um, gentle vocal part. Yeah. And when I played it back, all you could hear was my vocal and the fan of the Mac going, <laughs> Yeah. So I just swamped it in reverb. Yeah. Um, and it's tuned to the sound of the fan. Well, well yeah, Lee Mavis style. Well, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah. I love Lee Mavis. But um, and then I put this track together. A friend of mine listened to it who had been to music college and done production, and he was like, "Your kick is in the wrong key to the rest of the song. It sounds weird." And I said, "I think it sounds fucking great. Yeah. I like it." And he was just like, "It sounds weird to me." And he was. He's a great guy. I love him to bits, but he was quite dismissive of it. Mm. So anyway, I put this song out and The Guardian said it was going to be the next big thing. There you go. And it just went fucking, and I was just like, go. this is such a blag. Yeah. So I guess the reason behind this anecdote is, to anyone listening, if you're wanting to do music, you can, like, it's more about the song and it's more about the the, the texture as opposed yeah. to it being perfect and it being a perfect record. And I had a conversation with a music producer in London who was telling me for his pr project that he was working on, he was t testing out all these like 10 grand mics, getting testers to make sure it suited the female vocalist's voice. And I was just like, no one gives a shit who listens yeah. to music about that, like to that, the, the getting into that kind of minutia. It's more about the performance and it's more about the song. And, and, and really, you know, no one listens to a Beyonce track and says, Oh, do you know what? If she, that mic's not quite right, you know, for a single lady, if they'd have used like a fifties Neumann, yeah. you know, what I mean, that never is never the conversation. So, hundred percent agree. Yeah, hundred percent agree. So yeah. it's interesting that you kind of create your own textures and you kind of think outside the box. That same producer actually was rabbiting on about this fucking microphone, which yeah. I thought was bollocks. Um, he was, he he was a bit conflicted because I remember he he played me a piece of electronic music. And it had this unreal textured sound to it that kind of was, it, it sounded a bit synthy, but it had a lot of depth to it, but it sounded like something in slow motion throughout this composition he'd written. And I said, what is that? And he went, I can't tell you. And I went, come on, show me what it is. Mm -hmm. So he took all the effects off it and put it, and it was him biting into a crisp. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, just, it was just quite crunch. So yeah, it was... Uh, just goes to show. Yeah. You can make uh, music from all kinds of angles. So with the Glock, you're going. You've got. You've just. You've got a new vinyl coming out, and you're going on tour, yes, and and yes. that that starts at October fourth, is it in Winsford? I think I looked at. Yeah, it. I've got the dates printed out. If you want to. Yeah. See them. Um, oh. Um, got the the press release. Oh my gosh! Watch out for this being the you know you can compare it to the articles to get written. Groundbreaking, same, you know, like um, 
company would be like, fantastic visual. <laughs> Unforgettable psychedelic journey into the realm where guitars and synths collide in gravity-free space. If you see that phrase <laughs> in any of the blogs, <laughs> you'll know they were being lazy. Fabulous. Uh, the dates are all in there. Right, um, I'm going to read through them right now so people can get their tickets. August, sorry, October 5th, Winsford at the Hive. October 6th, Trades Club in Hebden Bridge. That's a great venue. Mm. Hebden Bridge is cool. Like that, yeah. uh, Pop Rex in Sunderland on the 7th. Uh, that is also a great venue, and they do a mega coffee. I was in yeah. there the other day. Yeah, I've been there before. It's lovely, yeah. Yeah, that's run by uh, Frankie and the Heartstrings yes. uh, Gazer. Yeah. He seems cool. I've never met him, but he seems cool because he was part of Wichita. I got were... a sticker from, from the last time I was there. They did a sticker called Still Hate Thatcher, ah. which I've got on my amp still. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. Um, then you're playing Leeds at the Old Woolen, Edinburgh Voodoo Rooms, Aberdeen the Tunnels. That's a cool venue. We played that with Afflex. Uh, stereo in Glasgow, Future Yard in Birkenhead. That's uh, a top place as well. Oh yeah, it is. It's it's an interesting. Uh, the high street in there, it just looks like they used to have so much money, and yeah. it's a, it's a little bit kind of not shabby chic, but it's like it's a little bit weathered, and but you can still f- almost feel the heartbeat of the place. And yeah. some Future beautiful- Yard itself is just this little oasis of of activity. Okay, in quite a deserted area, isn't it? I've not been to Future Yard. I've been to, I've been to Birkenhead, but um, I've not been to it. But it's um... yeah, it's in quite a quiet neighbourhood. Okay. And but it's got this this great venue. It's got a bit of a bit of a warren, and then there's out the back is a nice big garden, and they've got a stage out there as well. Nice. A real community there. It's um, yeah, uh, it's quite a new venue, isn't it? It's not been around for too. Or am I getting confused? Well, I, well, I played it a couple of years ago, or two, a year ago, or something. Um, I don't know how long it was going before that, but yeah, right. I mean, it's probably pretty new, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you're playing also... Oh, God, it goes on. You've, you're going to be touring forever. Uh, <laughs> the Seventh Wave Festival in Birmingham, the Verdant Tap Room in Curnow, which is Cornwall. Yeah. But they say Curnow down there. All right. Uh, right yeah, that's what they say, apparently. The Grace in London, Moles in Bath, where uh, the Smiths famously played some of their early shows. Join us in Southampton, which is run by Pat. Do you know Pat? Mul, uh, Mulhern, I think, or Mulvey. Oh. oh, that rings a bell. He's the geezer who works on a door. Huge, ex-bouncer, massive hands. Right. Lovely, lovely guy. So I hope Pat's working a door because he's a really nice geezer. Got into a bit of a strife, actually, when Affleck Palace played at uh, the Joiners. Some oh. geezer smashed a fucking microphone into my teeth. Oh. Yeah, so he, got, he all got a bit really? heated. The geezer who fucking, I, I told him to fuck off, and his dad came back and snapped the vinyl and fucking kicked off. Look at it, it's chaos. But that won't happen at your gig, because people are uh, a little bit more... Well, the, the people at that gig see. will fly. Yeah, you'll be if fine. If anyone sticks that... a mic into my face, <laughs> it might all kick off, we'll see. Yeah, just say, please don't do that, or I'll have to uh, smash it with my synth. Uh, Green Door Store in Brighton yeah. on the uh, 26th of October. Going to Margate in Kent, uh, elsewhere on the 27th of October, and you finish with the, I, I guess, what you would class as a home time show yeah. at the O2 in, uh, in Oxford. And would that be a long tour, that, isn't it? You're going to be out for a while, mate. Yeah. You better pack up, uh, get, get plenty of Greg's in <laughs> yeah. as you're piling around the, uh, the country. But yeah. Do. Is that the Zodiac? Is that what used to be the Zodiac? What's, it, what's the venue? It's the, the, uh, o- uh, the O2 Academy uh, 2 yeah. in Oxford. Yes, it is. Upstairs, is yeah. it? Yeah, the yeah. Zodiac. Yeah, yeah, that's a cool venue. It is a great venue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, when you um, you were were you raised in Oxford? 
Yes, I was born in Cardiff, Wales, but that was just for, um, the very, very beginning of my life. So my parents both English, right? Um, were in Cardiff for a, a job that my dad had, and then moved to Oxford about a year later. So I was like eighteen months old. Okay. So I only remember Oxford. Right. Um, How did you find Oxford growing up? Because I remember listening to an interview with Tom York because it's quite a Abingdon. He's from. Oh. Yeah, he's is not that, from Oxford. Oh, is he not? Yeah. Is Abingdon quite yeah. well to do? Well, it, I don't know. I don't, I've never been there. Oh, right. But it's not Oxford. Okay. Because I remember <laughs> listening to an interview with him and he said um, that his parents drove a Volvo estate. And I was like, well, they were dear when, when I was a kid. And then he said, and my parents, when I first started playing, when I wanted to be a musician, bought me a Mesa Boogie combo. And I was like, fucking hell, they were so expensive. <laughs> I was like, I was lucky if I got a park practice amp. Yeah. You know, but I was just like, you know, what, what was it like growing up in Oxford? And, you know, did you find... Um, Oxford's a lovely place. It's full of... It's, I think the town itself was started in about 1100. So right. it's like super old and vintagey. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so the university is a real lovely part of part of town. But really, um, I grew up in a suburb called Headington. Okay, is just like any other suburb in okay. any other town, really. I suppose. Right. Um, and there's quite a bit of, I suppose, rivalry between the students and the locals. Okay. So it was. It didn't feel like I was growing up in Harry Potterville. If you know no. what I mean. It yeah, was yeah, just, yeah. Just fairly, st- I'd say fairly standard upgrade, upbringing. Yeah. Um, uh, my dad worked in the university library, so he was oh. involved in all that thing. So he used to take me down and show me the, uh, under under the grounds, they have this thing called the stacks, which is like where they store one of every book ever made. Wow. I don't know if they still do that okay. to that extent. Yeah. But at that point in the 80s, 90s, they were still, or 80s, they were still doing that. Yeah. Um, so I used to go to work with him sometimes and sit there and he'd pull me out like he used to pull me out um, old music magazines to look at. So he knew I was into music. So I, if I was had to go into if I had to sort of if he had me that day, you know, yeah, for whatever reason, I guess we're talking school holidays, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what I've just been through now. The last yeah. six weeks of my life has been <laughs> like that. Um, trying to involve my kids and whatever. I almost had to bring my daughter here today. Wow. But um, she's on my play date. Oh, nice. So it's all right. Because her school, although it's it's not crumbling because the concrete, they had a cyber attack, so they've been put off for a week. Right. In their new school year. Right. But um, I digress. So, he, yeah, he used to give me um, 70s music mags. He'll pull out a little thing and say, right, you can look through all them. And I'd be, I'd be absolutely lost in the world of, you know, like I, bands I never, never really heard, but like sounding amazing. Like, you know, I guess it would be T-Rex. and Yeah, of course. Alex Harvey band and... Like just, oh, it all sounds amazing, you know. It, um, yeah, it was really good. What was really, the fir- really what was the first gig you went to? Do you remember? Um, well, I mentioned Susan the Banshees. That was one that of the was first. your first. Okay. I went to see Aztec Camera as well. Ah. Oh. Uh, and these are all at Oxford Apollo, which is in the centre of town. It's about two thousand size venue. Okay. Susan the Banshees, I think, was the first one. Aztec Camera soon after, and the Smiths soon after that. Well, it was uh, at the Apollo. Murder tour. Wow. Yeah. Really, really game-changing gigs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the Smiths. The loudest of the three was Aztec Camera. Right. <laughs> Which is surprising, isn't it? Um, Are they Scottish? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roddy Frame. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I think I'm a bit older than you, but that, but when I was about 
14, 15 years old, he was having a bit of a moment, or right. they were having a bit, bit of a moment. Yeah. They're at first album, you know, Oblivious, that song Oblivious? Yeah. That had just come out, and um, oh, they were brilliant, really, really good. Ah, oh, wonderful. Yeah. Much cooler for the first gigs than mine. I saw... What were your first? My first gig I was taken to by my mum at Leeds Irish Centre uh, when I was really little, and I went to watch... It was a double header. It was Nine Below Zero, that pub rock band, mm-hmm. and it was Dr. Feelgood. That's amazing. Oh, man. It was... Dr. F- Feelgood. Now, he died I'm mixed on up on this, but is that milk and alcohol? Is that's that right. He died yeah. on a milk and alcohol. I thought you were going to say, like, um, I don't know, right? I, I mean, think if, if my parents were taking me to gigs, it would have been, like, Cliff Richard or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was unreal. Dr. Feelgood. Yeah, Will, Wilco Johnson wasn't playing with them at that point. He'd, yeah. he'd, he was doing his solo stuff. Right. But um, I remember the the guitarist standing at the bar after Dr. Feelgood had played, and, my, and I was like, oh, my God, there's the guitarist. And my yeah. mum was like, go talk to him, go say hello. And she was just, and I, and I was just like, oh, I can't. And then she went to the toilet just so I had my own time to just gather my thoughts. And then I went over, I was like, that was absolutely amazing, and he couldn't have been nicer. He was nice. just like a session oh, guitarist. That's good. That's yeah, good. he was like super nice and gave me time and talks, and it was cool. And Yeah. So from from going to the early gigs at the Apollo, we start we started to go and see gigs at the Poly. So we were at Cheney School, which is the comprehensive in in Headington, and next door to it was Oxford Poly. Okay, they had a bar which started putting bands on. So in sixth form, um, that was when I saw the Valentines, the House of Love, the Roses, Spaceman Three. I don't know who was booking the gigs, but there was like a few months. All these were in a few months. How was the um, Roses gig? Incredible. Oxford, well, oh. I was, this is what m- made me think of this, what you just said, um, was that I went to, we went to Soundcheck. And so, um, I mean, actually now thinking about it, I'd, I was at art school by this point. Um, so we'd left the school. So I wasn't, I think while I was at the school, it was more like um, that petrol emotion, um, the Mighty Lemon Drops, Popoli itself. It was that, that period. Popoli, yeah, yeah. Then by the time I was in art school, we were going back to the venue next to the school. Okay. Oxford Poly. And then there was this period where they had all these bands playing. Wow. And so we popped over for the day. It was an art school foundation course we were doing. Right. So this was a photography project. Um, so I took my camera. And I've, got, I've got some good pictures at the Roses gig. Wow. Um, That's wonderful. So like... Well, that would have been 89, was it? It was Made of Stone ah, tour. Okay. Or, you know, that single was the one that was current. Was that I just think. before the album came out? Or was the album out at that point? The self-titled proper debut after well, Garage right. Flower? Let's work it out. I'd got I'd got the seven-inch single of, of Made of Stone just by luck, by being in a store, and I hadn't heard them, and I hadn't heard anything about them. I just saw the single and thought, that looks cool. Yeah. I'll take a chance on that. But it's Jackson Pollock, was it, like-esque kind of cover? Yeah, um, it was. And um, at the time, I was like, okay, Made of Stone, yeah, cool track. I really like going down on the B-side. I really, really like that, the B-side. Oh, really? Yeah. Ding, I, ding, I, ding. Yeah. Um, great tune. That was, that was the one that really got me into them. And then I think it was pretty soon after that they played Oxford. Um and I think by the time they were playing, I, I'd read a bit more about them. And there was mm-hmm. the, I mean, I've cut, I used to cut all the press cuttings out, Fabulous. stick them on the wall. Yeah. There were some really cool early pictures, early little articles. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, Manny gives me loads about this because uh, he's convinced I was pulling his flares during the gig because I told him I was at that gig and I was like, oh, yeah, Oxford Poly, yeah, someone was pulling my flares all night. <laughs> it was you, wasn't it? It, was like, it wasn't me. Oh, but, that was um, amazing. Yeah. Um, at the sound check, though, um, I sat myself down at a table sort of out of the way um, before anyone came out and the first thing that happened was Rennie came out and started hitting the drums. And the drum kit was sort of like a real um, hodgepodge of different drums. And That's drum right. Kits. It was like a... a bis- quite basic. It wasn't that much to it, but no. it was just like... All different coloured. Yeah, all different colours, yeah. He just started just doing, in, in his amazing style, just playing this beat. And it just was like... It wasn't like a sound check, because sound checks you'd normally hear would just be like... Doom, doom, yeah, doom. yeah, yeah. This was like someone had remixed Fool's Gold, you know. Right. Um, just this great... Loose. So fluid. Fluid. Bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, after about five minutes of me just listening to this and just like mind's blown, you know, like I'm just watching it and John Squire just sidles up and plugs in and starts just jamming over the top of it. And at the same time, Ian comes and sits down at the table right next to me and sort of like just sat like that, just watching and gave me a little nod. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Ian Brown just nodded at me, <laughs> um, which was just unreal. Yeah, that was it. That was the extent of the conversation, but that was sort of enough anyway. That um, would be mind blowing. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Ride had just started. It was very early days, okay. and so it was it was big, you know. Um, and yeah, I went, the gig was great. Um, I remember. Was it sold out? Was it packed out? Yeah, oh, packed out. Okay, massive mosh pit and all that. I remember yeah. being in the front of the mosh pit. Um, not pulling Manny's flares, but just having a good time. Yeah. Um, and t- taking some photographs, which I've still got, which I have to send you. I'd love to see two them. Or three there, two or three. I haven't got negatives, but I've got, I've got like, you know, files of yeah the prints. Um, but yeah, I bought a T-shirt afterwards off Phil Smith, who now, I mean, he went on to be the DJ for uh, Oasis. Oh, and okay. And is production manager and DJ for Noel. So I saw Phil last week. Okay. But yeah, um, he was... I didn't know I was buying a T-shirt off him until years later when he told me, well, you know, I, I'd mentioned, oh, I bought a T-shirt at that gig. Because I still wear that T-shirt. Right. Good quality. <laughs> um, like when it's the Mac T-shirt day, I always bring it out. You know? Amazing. People was like, well, you bought a T-shirt in Oxford on that tour. So yeah, that was me you bought it off. So was he the, doing merch on the tour for the entire tour or was he just in Oxford? On the whole tour. Right, right. He's yeah, I think on. he was just at one of the roadies and they were doing everything, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, and like, uh, how did you, I'm, I'm guessing when you were, did you have any kind of uh, um, relationship with the Roses and that kind of enclave musicians as Ride, Ride came to prominence or did you kind of get introduced to them more when you kind of joined Oasis or was there any kind of... Um. Well, Manny is a super friendly guy. So I, I met Manny, I think when I was in Hurricane number one, I met Manny. Mm. Um, must have gone up, gone up to him and started talking. Okay. And he was just super cool. You yeah, know? yeah. It's nice when they're like that. Um, and then I don't think I ever spoke to anyone else in the band until much later on. But yeah, Manny initially was the one I knew. Okay. Yeah. And how did you end up like getting getting the call for Oasis? Like you you were you joined. Hurricane number one and yeah, uh, we've done. Um, did you, you do two albums with did them. Two albums with them. Yeah, and that had sort of come to a natural end, and I'd moved. I'd actually moved out to Sweden. Okay. So I was living in Sweden and thinking, I think I'm done with this now. 
Um, with, with music, is it? Yeah, just for a while anyway. Or you know, I think it, at the time I thought it was, yeah, done. I just had a kid, had a little baby girl, and um, my my first wife, my wife at the time, was going out to work. We had a little flat, and um, I was just kind of a bit over it at the time. The only time in my life I've really not wanted to do music. Was that a consequence of the records not connecting with Hurricane Number One, or yeah, it was kind of, yeah, I think it was tied up with Hurricane, and and I think also a hangover of the. I mean, Hurricane in its entirety was a little bit like a like a post breakup experience, you know, because yeah. it was Ride was like my yes. my band, and it was my school friends, and it was like um, it felt like it was going to go on forever and then it just all kind of fell apart in a really bad way and yeah so um hurricane in a lot of ways was a typical rebound experience it's like well ride was a pure democracy and so this is going to be like i'm going to just decide everything with hurricane okay and build it my way and yeah in, in reaction against you know it was always in it was always done as the it's going to be the opposite to that you know which i don't think you should really try and engineer these things i think you should really just be natural and mm. you know but I, I was not in a place to, to have that occur to me. So I was sort of reacting to yeah. life rather than... And you want to feel like you're being creative at that point as well. I've had projects where it's kind of not... Yeah, technical. I just you want to get back on the horse and yeah. do something more. And I've, like, I've got all these songs and, you know, and, and obviously the Oasis was happening. I, wanted to, I, I was seeing that and hearing that and loving it and, and just kind of wanting to do something like that. Um, and, yeah, it... It worked initially, right? And then, and then it just kind of, its limitations became obvious. Okay. Um, mine and just the limitations of, of, I don't know, the situation, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, that was, that went through creation, right? It did, yeah. And Ride, all of Ride's early albums went through creation. Uh, yeah. So uh, th- we were signed to creation by Alan McGee, who's the guy that's um, signed Oasis as well. That's right. Yeah. Um, and he, he so, sorry, we're deviating here, but like that's really interesting because right. Creation is really known as the label who signed Oasis. Everybody always goes on about McGee turning up to King Tut's and yeah. being like on the, you know, on the some sort of dusty knoll. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, but like they were already a popping label because they had Ride and yeah, and my my bloody Valentine is that right? So, I've yeah, got, Creation was a great label, really, really great label. Um, in the years before Oasis, as well, you know, they, obviously they were born to. I would say Creation was destiny was to put o- Oasis out. Okay, yeah. When when Oasis happened to Creation, it was like everything fell into place for the label. It okay. was what the band they've been waiting for, you know. Um, but the build up to that point was also really good. Mm. It was just different. Um, so the label started off with a, a bunch of mates from Scotland moving to London. So you've got Alan McGee, Bobby Gillespie, Andrew Innes, Joe Foster, who was the producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was, uh, there might have been a couple more people, but like the little gang of Scots okay. um, moving into London. So already there's, there's, there's Jesus Mary Chain, Primal Scream, because the Mary Chain is the main band that Bob's in. But he's got this side thing, Primal Scream. Yeah. Alan's got a band called Biff Bang Pow. Um, and they've all got a couple of bands. Like they've all got, he, he, I think he was in Exploding Paint Dream, Biff Bang Pow, all really mega 60s 
sort of like sixties mod stuff, basically. Okay. okay. Um, and so Creation na- is named after uh, the the band, the Creation. Ah. Who did the song called Biff Bang Power, which is Alan's band, you know? So okay, it's all connected in that way. Um, and so from that initial kind of very sixties-ish sort of thing, it it kind of became. And Mary Chain did the first single on Creation, then moved to a major. Primal Scream did a, cu- a few singles on on Creation, then they went they went off to a major. Okay. Um, and they were having this in it, this recurring thing, you know. Um, House of Love was the next one. They did um, an album for Creation, then went to off to Fontana. Right. So it was just a recurring theme of just right. no one would stay with them. Um, they were still, I guess, they were still working out how to do it. Okay. There wasn't any money. Yeah. But they had the they had the taste and they had the yeah. The right idea. Sure. But, um, so then, actually, Palmer Scream, they, you have to fact this, fact check this. Yeah, I yeah. Think they went away to a major and then came back to creation. Okay. Because we were getting signed um, around the same time they were making Scream Delica. Right. So, um, while we were coming into the office to see McGee and have meetings with him, he'd be taking phone calls from, like, Weatherall in the studio saying, what, what's a click track? apparently we've got to make a click track how do we do that and sort wow. of like doing all these things like that um figuring out how to make these groundbreaking dance records that's andy um, weatherall yeah for, yeah yeah um so it was a really really good time and, and at, at that point screaming was probably the coolest thing yeah that happened to music in that year um and primal scream felt like pop stars okay at the level that creation were at, at that point yeah we were all looking around going wow you know they're on top of the pops, you know, this is mental. Absolutely. Um, around the same time, you've got the Roses and the Mondays on the top of the pops. You had Primal Scream coming up. Um, how did you get in, how did uh, they come across Ride? Uh, did you send them demos or did you already yeah. have a working relationship? We, Do you we remember? demo tape in, in Banbury that we put in on sale in a local record shop. Right. And um, I think, actually, it was... I think it through a proper organic process made it to the enemy, you know, hot tunes list, whatever, whatever it was that they called it at the time. And then we were, I mean, we were getting um, people from major labels turning up after about five or six gigs, which is mental. That is mad. Um, just didn't realize how mad that was at the time. But yeah, that, that was really, really soon. Um, and a person, a, a guy called Callie Callaman from WEA um, offered us some money to finish our first EP, No Strings Attached. Wow. As the first stage in a process of like... Caught in you. We're going to... We're yeah. the, the fashion at the time, which is what The Scream had done and The House of Love, was, was a major label would have like a fake indie. Yeah. Uh, like Blanco and Negro or... or um, I can't remember the names in them, but they'd, they'd always be like a, a little cool label that looked like an indie, but actually it was a major label. Sure. Um, and Which still happens today, actually. But anyway. It probably does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were sort of being um, courted by a couple of major labels, and in the swing and throwing of all that, McGee came along, saw us place on a, on a tour. That's what it was. We got invited to go on tour with the Soup Dragons, who were having a big moment with um, I'm Free, I guess. Okay. I think it was that tour. And um, they let us play through their amps. They had real equipment. So uh, we, were, we were suddenly like twice as loud. Yeah. And we became, we, we basically got really good 
on that tour. Okay. And McGee, I think, was already mates because it's a Scottish band, so I think he knew them and popped along, not really expecting to see anything, and saw us and then came like three times in a row um, to that, you know, the, the first gig, second gig, third gig. Sure. On the third gig, it was like, I want to sign you guys, and we were like, all right. <laughs> Great. Um, just kind of felt like uh, it was it was probably the right thing. Although we had been talking about what label we would like to be on, and because we were sort of, we were like ultra indie in our outlook. We wanted to be on 4AD. Of course. Because it I was thought the, it'd be a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the sort of the really arty one. Yeah. Um, question we thought was like, well, you know, it's, it's cool, but 4AD's got this, um, the Vaughan Oliver sleeves, you know, the, 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 all the sleeves had this look. Okay. A little bit more like a sort of Smith's sort of okay. atmosphere or something. Well, they'd, they'd probably hate that comparison, but arty sleeves. Sure. But set them um, apart. But you know what? Alan McGee is, is brilliant. He's um, a real friend of, of uh, sort of like, he's, a, he's a really connected to the, what is good about being a musician. Right. In, in terms of what you should do if you're, if you reckon that came out all wrong. But what I'm trying to say is he had the artistic aims in mind of the bands. Yeah. So he, he was like, I'm signing you, but you do what you want. I think if I'm you, just here to put records out for you. I think that's I think that's um, the benefit of working with someone who was in a band like uh, yeah, who is yeah, an artist, just the not, point of view. not just a business person that's trying to kind of get sales and you know it's it, it's a real benefit of to, especially when it comes to A and R and stuff like that. Yeah, I've 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 had conversations with a, with people who are A and R where they they say th- really helpful things like uh, it's not quite right yet when you send over a song and you say right well. Or what do you think would make it right? I don't know, but when you get there, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. To, you put a gun in your mouth at the moment, but um, yeah. But it was it was the partnership of Alan McGee and Dick Green. Yeah, Dick. They were, yeah, they run it together, and we are still working with Dick with Richard, sir. Yeah, yeah. So he puts out the new ride stuff. Yeah, but yeah. Alan McGee was um, a really, really good, really, really good A and R man. Yeah. Well, and as evidenced he, by the fact that he picked Oasis up, you know. Of course. So you've just finished Hurricane. Were you still in Hurricane Number One when you got the call, or you no, you'd, no, you'd, you'd, you'd gone to Sweden? Yeah. How did that all unfold? Like, you know, how did you end up getting up? You know. Um, I was. So what happened was I moved to Sweden and I had uh, gone to gone to see this band. He was a, a guy I knew called Cliff, who was a interviewed me for a guitar magazine. And then rang me up and said, oh, I've got this new band called Gay Dad. Oh, yeah. Come and see us in Sweden. Okay. Playing. We're on tour, passing through your town. It's like, oh, yeah, cool. Went to the gig. We hung out, had a few beers. Um, and then next thing was he rang me a few weeks after that and said, oh, Andy, um, I'm in a bit of a jam. Our guitarist has, has, has um, left the band. And I've, we've got this just before Christmas. This is not Christmas 99. Yeah. Um, we've got this two-week trip around Germany. And we need a guitarist super quick. And I know that you could probably do it really easy in your sleep. And there'll be some money in it, you know, like just two weeks in Germany. Yeah. Nice little pay packet for Christmas. Absolutely. I was like, all right, cool. Um, Then he goes to the papers and says, Andy Bell's joined Gay Dad. Um, Which is not the the case at all. But um, apparently (laughs) Liam and Noel or or Paul Gallagher has been sat reading the NME. Right. in a car with Liam and Noel and gone, um, oh, it says here that Andy Bell's joining Gay Dad. Um, and they both kind of went like, or Liam, I think Liam went, 
oh, we can't have that. If he's around, if he's available on the market, you know, we should get him to come in and replace um, Wiggs. Wiggs, yeah, because they had they had Gemach already. Okay, so um, I get this call in Sweden to uh, to come over and try out for Oasis. Is that their management? Is that who could yeah. the call? Yeah. Well, well, it was the management first, just to say, can Noel call you? And and then Noel called, Noel gave me a call, just said. Um, you know, fancy trying out for this. So I'm there. I'm I'm leaving for the airport now as we speak. Um, Fabulous. So came straight over that same that same day. Um, went out for drinks with Noel and Gem that evening. Um, next day, um, got picked up from my hotel in a, a car by Liam and his driver. Drove out to Wheeler End, which is the studio they had. Did the audition with them. Um, I mean, I, that, this is playing bass. I couldn't play bass. No. Um, I picked the bass up and started sort of playing it with my fingers, and they're like, "No, no, 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 use a pick." Yeah, this is a, this is a Sid Vicious thing we're going for. Yeah. Um, so I kind of did enough, and then we went to the pub, and had a big, big drink up, and that was that was part of it as well. I think just not turning into too much of a twat at the pub was important. Of course, I'm sure I turned into a bit of a twat, but like, yeah, you know, it was acceptable levels. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then um, that same day, the the manager took me aside and said, "Look, if you if you want to do it, you can do it." And I was like, "I want to do it." Of course. Um, yeah. And what was your first gig with Oasis? Do you remember? We, yeah, we did a short tour in America, um, which was like th- just three or four gigs, and they were really short. It was part of a package with with about five bands, and you'd come on and do like your your biggest hits. So the ideal way for me and Gem to come in, it was like Supersonic, Champagne Supernova, you know, like 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 to get us an alcohol, rock and roll star, just songs that we already were just burned into our brains anyway. Yeah. Um managed to get enough with it on the bass to to play them all right. And then um went back to Sweden for that Christmas and basically just just spent hours every day studying the bass on all the records because I'd never really never really checked for the bass and knew what it, what it was doing on Oasis records I knew that there was some well some you knew like there were the later records um, the most recent stuff that they were doing there was bass lines but um, a well, lot the of the time in the early stuff you didn't really hear the, the well, it's so low in the mix it's just all part of the wall of sound isn't absolutely. it absolutely which it's is all, good it's, yeah, yeah, what yeah. you want so it took, it took a little bit of help sometimes to figure out what was going on but they you know they were patient with me Right, um, and, and I wanted to nail it. I wanted it to be nailed down so that, basically, so that I could be in a hurricane, and I'd still be playing that bassline. So I'd, I'd just crammed it into my head so hard that it was never going to leave. Like if you said to me now, play rock and roll star, I just fucking bust it out. Uh, you know, it would be easy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Muscle, muscle memory. Things. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And how did you find the the, differ- the difference in reaction from the crowd? Because I would have thought that with ride. It's yeah. um, a slightly different demographic demographic of people going, you know, kind of uh, yeah, more I mean, more like, stand back, listen, enjoy, as opposed to Oasis, where it's just like this avalanche of chaos in front of you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably true to an extent. I mean, we'd get people going mad at gigs as well. We did, okay. did some big festival gigs, um, but yeah, you'd also get a lot of, I mean, our, our size was sort of like, We'd do a Brixton Academy show. Oh, okay, cool. Um, or Kilburn National, um, 
but then you'll be doing clubs in all around the world you know you, yeah you go to europe with ride and it would be like maybe 500 people okay and they would be stood back like that okay so in the uk yeah it was a bit more rowdy but um but yeah i think oasis was a different level okay for sure okay and they were huge gigs uh right from the start it was the first tour we we did um the uk run was all stadiums and then you know then it was like it just it was a different thing to get to get used to that you'd you'd announce the tour and then you would get a phone call later that day to say that it had sold out that's unreal yeah. yeah and it would be oh that that didn't take too long just 3 hours this time you know like and yeah you're just like wow um it really yeah it's really really good really of course good. so you could cho- you could sort of choose um you know someone would be able to, as a band you'd be able to choose what kind of tour you do like sometimes you'll choose to do little venues so um i remember one time we were putting out a new album and we did like five different gigs in london and they were all like from a few hundred up to a few thousand just like just take your pick of gigs you know of course what, what a luxury yeah i know yeah it's um yeah it's super cool yeah and w- at what point did you start getting involved with the songwriting uh with oasis because obviously they, they put out uh well four albums with First two, um, definitely maybe what story, then master plan, then beer now, and then uh, was the first album cycle that you played on was that standing on the shoulders or yeah they they'd done standing on the shoulder giants they'd recorded that mm-hmm. and uh, I was I think game had been been brought in during the mixing of that record right um, and there was a video that he was in before I joined. Um, and the first video that I was in was for Who Feels Love. Okay. So Go Let It Out was the first single off that record. Yeah. And then Who Feels Love was the first one that I was in the video for, but I wasn't on the record. Right. Just appeared in that video and then did the world tour. And then um, the next record after that was the first one that I was on. That was Heathen Chemistry. Right. And yeah, the songwriting was kind of an an open invitation from Noel from from day one just if you have any songs you think would fit just feel free to bring them in and and you know there's there's a space for you to write with the band if you that's want great it's yeah i mean i didn't have to do that and, no. I, and it was by no means something that i would have insisted on because no. the oasis that i knew and loved was basically you've got noel writing the tunes got liam singing the tunes and i think he had done liam had written one or two with like little james and you know that's that's uh, that's all well and good, but as far as two brand new people coming in and writing tunes, I wasn't expecting that. No, um, which is quite at odds with like you know, I think that Liam and Noel give the most interesting interviews in music. Yeah, yeah they're brilliant at that. But yeah. but they're also they, they can be quite spiky. I think it's a diplomatic way of saying it. Yeah. So behind the scenes, to know that they are quite they were quite welcoming, and, and Noel give you that kind of. You know, yeah, they're absolutely mega people. Like yeah. that's yeah, that's the end of it. You know, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. They're um, they're fantastic people to work with and be with and hang out with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, Every level. Yeah, that's yeah, that's great. Because when you're touring around the world and and it, you're living kind of in each other's company a lot of the time, you know, it can if 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 you're not with people that you get on with, it can they yeah, give you the. I, th- I think you're right, and it's and it's important. You can't, I mean, if you're going to replace people, the ideal is to have people that you can 
be yourself around them and you feel fairly comfortable around them. Absolutely. And that is, I think, why when they were going to replace the two that left, um, they looked for people that were part of the label f- yeah. circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, it just just meant there was a little bit of a something in common there. Yeah, that, common ground, yeah. Yeah, because having got Gem from Heavy Stereo, um, obviously I'd been in Ride, so it was the creation family sort of thing, I guess. Yeah. I totally get that. Um, it was a, a pretty smart way of going about it, I think. Well, one thing I, that I'd noticed with Liam is I, I, everybody always goes on about how he, his, his attitude and his the way he gives interviews, but no one really ever talks about how accurate his voice is. Mm-hmm. You know, people say he's, you know, oh, he's, he's got a style. You know, he's, you can, Liam could sing any song and you could say within a split second it's him, which is very difficult to do. Yeah. But one thing that I don't think is appreciated is how accurate, like when you're singing in a stadium and everybody else is singing along and you've got delays and all sorts of frequencies going along. I know he's got like a, a wall of like mm-hmm. monitors around him, but to sing those tunes that accurately consistently is uh, something... Liam's which, uh, voice is like a laser-guided missile. It's ri- Yeah. It's ridiculous. It and it, and, it, and any, any song you give him to sing... I mean, this is, this, is, this is the thing that blows my mind about Turn Up The Sun or something. That was a, that was a, a different song the minute before I gave it to him to sing. Yeah. The minute it came out of his mouth, and also with Noel's guitar playing as well, the two of them, the pair of them, yeah. are equally amazing at their own thing. Yeah. But, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the minute Liam sang the words of Son of the Sun, it, be- it went from being kind of downbeat to being ferocious, you know yeah. what I mean? It <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. just kind of totally um, gave it, gave himself to it. Yeah. It's, oh. yeah, yeah, remarkable band. What success. What, what did, um, did, did your band support Liam? Not my band, Pastel. Pastel. Pastel supported yeah. Liam. They're on your label. That's right, and I manage them. Yeah. There's the... Um, That's the family thing then. Yeah, yeah. well, you... yeah, Katie Gwyther is doing their press. Yeah. And she's fantastic. She's yeah. so locked, clued up and locked yeah. on. Um, But, yeah... It, their song Deeper Than Holy got played to Liam at some point by someone, I'm not sure who. Yeah. And he requested that they open the Nebworth show, which is was... It, is it Isaiah? Isaiah, yeah, I produ- yeah. Yeah, yeah. I produced that for him. Tune, man. What a tune. Yeah. It took so... So when we, when, we, when we took that into the studio, that whole intro for that song, and you had to be kind of quite optimistic and euphoric and without be and be quite subtle at the same time and the, the guitar part that is opens the song was actually i pulled that out of the middle eight and i put that at the front and wrote a string section around it and the whole build thing cool came into it yeah so you produced that record yeah cool yeah 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 um thank you but isaiah is remarkable consider it and they're so um considering they're all in their early 20s yeah, they're, they're, they're writing some remarkable stuff. In fact, their single comes out tomorrow, their new single, which is a song called Your Day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Liam heard Deeper Than Holy and Isaiah and... Good often, taste, you see. Well, there you, you go. Come back to the good taste thing, isn't it? That's it, yeah. yeah. Um, and that was a wonderful... Considering it was, it's, it's so difficult to break a new band these days to kind of get them... It takes a, a lot of time. It's yeah. not like... You, there's, there's no kind of direct... 
right, we're, we're, we've got a, 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 we have a premiere with Radio 1. That's going to blow, and then we're on the front of NME, and that will get so many eyes on it. And then if the song's great, it will sink or swim. Yeah. It's a lot, it's a, a long game. So, excuse me. So, we've done two EPs, and now we're doing, and they've both charted, and um, yeah. They're, is there, so, is there a debut album out? Not yet. It's coming. This is the first, the single coming out tomorrow, which by the time this podcast comes out, will be out already. But yeah, the yeah. Sing, that single is the first single from their debut record, which will be right. out next year. And are any of the previous singles going to be on the album? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, we're just deciding which tracks we're yeah, to Yeah, I say. like that. I like that. I mean, I, Rye didn't do that, um, but I like that approach. You do, you, you gather up the previous singles and you make them part of the debut album. Yeah. You know, I think it's kind of right. I agree. We took a different view at the time. In 1990, we were like, um, we'd done two EPs and so that was like Chelsea Girl and Drive Blind was on the first EP. Yeah. It's four songs, but those are two sort of the bigger ones. And then on the second EP, there's Like a Daydream. And then um, third EP was sort of with the album, so that just doesn't really count because they were on the album. But like, yeah, you just... We were like, we don't want any of those other singles to be on the, the debut album. We, we want it to be fresh. All fresh. Yeah. But, um, I do, but I do like the, the other way. That's... Feels more like you're making it a classic. I feel like you're ba- you're backing yourself and your ability to the hill when you put out a completely fresher record in the day and age now. Oh, now you would be even more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I and, and I completely respect that. But when I so I, there's a couple of bands. I mean, you're right, and it is backing yourself. But as a but um, on another level. All right, so so doing it all fresh, you're backing yourself. Yeah. Um, level one. Yeah. Level two, backing yourself is going. Let's put the other singles on as well because it's because because we can we can handle the fact that people might say oh you're putting all the you know what I mean yeah like maybe it's a double bluff of of kind of it does seem like it's a it's a it's a good thing to do all fresh stuff but then again you you just want to override that and be let's just make it huge yeah absolutely well yeah you know? well, let's I, go for the jugular it, well the yeah and I think that from a commercial stamp stamps for a band like Pastel. It, it, we work to certain budgets and I want like the EPs that uh, I've got actually got one of their EPs in the car for you on vinyl. Oh yeah. So I'll I'll sort you that out after, but um, yeah, they, um, we work on the budgets are super streamlined and the EPs have sold out. So if people want to get those songs on vinyl, because we won't be doing a repress of the EPs, that was a one time thing. If you want to get deeper than Holy and Isaiah and tunes like that, you need to buy the vinyl and support that release. But, you know, as I said to you in the car coming over, I'm very transparent with the artists I work with. Mm. I always say to them, look, this needs to be as good as it possibly can be in every level, because if it doesn't at least recoup, we can't make another. Yeah. And that's the that's the reality of like from a record label at our level. If it doesn't if it doesn't pop to the point where it recoups or makes a little bit of money. We can't make another one. And I want them to have a career where they can tour. Also, it's special. Don't want to keep reprinting everything all the time. I agree. Keep it special, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, can I just say, the titles, the titles, like, titles are so important. Song titles are amazing. Like, Deeper Than Holy, Isaiah. Also, like, your ones as well, like the Deflex Palace ones, Carpe Diem. What's the one about? I'm really glad you're on ecstasy. I'm it? so glad I'm you're on ecstasy. <laughs> yeah. 
And um, the dancing, what's the dancing one? Dancing is not a crime. Yeah, like it's a it's a great song titles. Thank you. And these are so, this is so important. I agree. Well, the, 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 I'm so glad you're on ecstasy. Was written after. Well, actually, it was written long after this anecdote. But what happened was I went to um, Camden Palace, which is now Coco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I w- not been to it since it got vamp- revamped. Oh. Apparently, it's been done up. Yeah, it's it's completely different to when it was Camden Palace, but. I first moved down to London and we were subletting a, a council flat, a high-rise council flat off um, a significant gangster. I can't I want to say his name. Big-time drug guy used to turn up with bags of pills and all sorts of shit. And he was quite a dangerous geezer. Mm. And he said to us, I'll tell you something, if you're going out in a town, you want to go Camden Palace, but make sure you wear a shirt and look smart because it's a pretty nice gaff." So I was like, shit, all right, so... If you're going up west. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just like, so we went to, we were in Deptford, we went over to Camden to this night. And we walked in and it was a fucking zoo. Mm. The geese in there were all football hooligans. And I was like 16, wearing this fucking BHS shit shirt yeah. and a pair of pinstripe jeans, looking like a right fucking dickhead. Yeah. So I'm stood there and in the corner, there was a group of guys that were massive and they were quite intimidating. And I was like, I do not want to make eye contact with them because when I was, I grew up in Leeds, and as soon as you make eye contact with someone like that in Leeds, they're coming over for a scrap. Yeah. So you're either running or you're having a tear up. Mm. You know, and uh, you know, I'm a pretty good runner. I don't want to be fighting <laughs> those fuckers. And um, anyway, I'm stood there and I glance over and one of them's just fucking eyeballing me, oh. and I'm like, oh no, fuck. Yeah. And with a couple of mates, one of which is a lunatic anyway, and he's like, we ain't going fucking nowhere, right? So I was like, all right, fair enough, let's have it then. Yeah. And he, this guy's geez, geez come over, and I think they were like construction, but they were like scaffolders, fucking huge. And they couldn't have been nicer. And the biggest one puts his arm around me. He's like, you're right, you're having a good... And, I, and at that point, I realised they were all smashed, and I yeah. thought, I was like, I'm so glad you're on ecstasy. I love it. So that's yeah. where the song comes from. I can from. see the song title coming over the horizon. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it, <laughs> I was. It was like, yeah. a, a, and I was like, I, before that starts wearing off, we need to leave. Cause, yeah. But um, but yeah, I think song titles are important. And I think um, trying to make everything as special as you can and not too obvious yeah. is important. And yeah. What were your favourite three gigs with Oasis that you did? Because uh, I've seen clips from Argentina. Thank you so much for giving me three, because everyone always says one, and I've always got to say the same one, because oh, otherwise I'd be sort of be like... Yeah, no, no, no. It's, yeah. I'm always about three, because it's like uh, there could be an intimate one um, or a massive one. Or... Okay, let's go. So the first one, I'm going to say the one I always say, which is River Plate Stadium. I've seen the videos. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, the, the video just captures it so well. Um, did you anticipate that kind of reaction from like when you were in the country, or was it just like... Yeah. I mean, okay. that was standard, not standard, but it was like, yeah, South America and, and sort of like the, um, I don't know, this, that part of the world always goes off. Mm. Um, but it was something extra that night. Yeah. I think because it was where the World Cup final was played and. Okay. Um, and like, it's such a rough stadium. I remember walking out for the sound check and seeing the stadium in its sort of bare form. It was just basically concrete and there wasn't really a back wall. So. It was sort of like a, just a drop off the back of it. It's really sort of primitive, um, no health and safety. Sort no. Of and seeing it in the afternoon and then come back in the evening and seeing the dist- just this sea of mayhem yeah. was special. 
was there a support, any support bands on on that event or it just? I can't remember. No. We used to have some great support bands though, on especially on the English English stadium runs. You know, it'd have like it'd be like going to a festival. You know, yeah, see everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, right, two more. Um, well, I don't want to do all big gigs, but the first Wembley Stadium was special for me because it was that was. A huge was that moment. the new Wembley or the old Wembley? It was the old Wembley. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, so that was in the year two thousand. Um, Summer 2000, so I'd been in the band about six months, and right from joining, um, this had been on the horizon. The yeah. gigs had already sold out. Um, Were you nervous? <laughs> <laughs> uh, was a touch nervous, yeah. Right. But, um, I mean, I, I I think nerves are pretty good. I've never been so nervous that, for example, I've thrown up or anything. I always just you no. know, have, take a moment. You know, you, didn't, you might just like take a second and just go out into the corridor for a couple of minutes and just kind of go like, sure. all right, let's have it sort of thing. But, you you know, I've, I think that's healthy. Yeah, but um, also with your experience with Ride, you've, you've been on a stage with gigs so much that I guess it, you kind of had the experience to take it in your stride, I guess. Well, yeah, that history and then going on to be in a band like Oasis, it does teach you, or what it taught me was that um, all bands are kind of, Every band is the same band in a way. Yeah. When you're on stage with people, you need to have chemistry to make it work. Yeah. And it comes down to what you're, the noise you're making, you know, individually and then as a group, you know, it just mm. comes down to that. That's as simple as that. If you, if you're, if it moves you, um, there's a big chance it will move them. And when it all goes right, it's just a brilliant feeling, you know, Absolutely. it's, it's um, that's what it's all about. Yeah. 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 So, um, that was a nice thing to, to sort of come to and not, th- not so I was thinking, well, okay, so there's nothing, there's nothing extra that we're not doing. Um, it just comes down to, I don't know, just, it's always that chemistry. Yeah. 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 Chemistry. You're part of a certain chemistry. And uh, I feel very lucky to have been part of the Oasis chemistry for mm. a few years. You know, mm. it was super special time. Yeah. I'll bet. Um, but yeah, so, that, so Wembley Stadium was was one of the first really huge ones that we did, and um, just remember the, the the hearing the intro music from right behind the stage. We would c- come out and you could hear the the crowd noise, um, just kind of like generally filling the stadium, and um, then you hear the the beat kick in and fucking the bushes comes on, and then this this roar was just so yeah, so massive. Um, and we were like literally standing right behind the stage going, here we go. Um, so that was, that's the second one. Um, it's almost gladiatorial. It's kind of like you're going into the arena, the gladiator yeah. arena. It's like, you know, that, that kind of, that, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, a third one. God, I just don't know what to say now. Having said all those ones. Were there any intimate shows or what about Jules Holland performing on there? Or was there anything that kind of steps out that was slightly unusual you're like oh wow that was better than i thought or was a gig that was the worst one where you, that sticks out in your mind where it's like that is the worst gig that we ever did that i didn't enjoy um i've actually been stumped here right I'm trying to remember any others but my memory is gone now these days a, f- a, f- a, f- a friend of mine he said that it, so danny yates who i mentioned earlier yeah he got him a job like sitting on this dressing room or whatever, just one of the Oasis gigs. And it, the first thing he said when he came back was, 
I couldn't. It, it was the people were singing so loudly. Yeah. I couldn't really hear what the fucking band were doing. Yeah. It was that. I'm gonna say. Yeah, I mean that's that is the case. Yeah, the singing, the the crowd are the gig a lot of the time. Mm. Um, because the songs are so good mm. and they're so, um, everyone they're part of everyone's life, you know. Yeah. But I'm gonna say uh, not a specific gig, but any gig in Italy. Italy right. was a place that loved Oasis so much. Right. Like, um, just I don't know. Yeah, any Italian gig. Right. Was the third one. I love Southern Italy. It's mm. it's where I go on holiday, and there's a really uh, well, wonderful traditional vibe over there. That's uh, great. And if, yeah, the few, f- there's a few Italian people that are into what we're doing with Spirit of Spike Island and yeah, Pastel sure, and Laughter. Yeah. So there's a real kind of seam of interest in British guitar music, and yeah, it's cool. Um, what I wanted to ask you also, just before we wrap things up, yeah. was the 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 Glock vinyl. Yes. Well, yeah, that's I've seen the pre-orders. It's a live recording. Yeah. So what it is, it's um, it's the first. Because uh, I was doing, ever since lockdown started, I've been sort of trying to do these solo gigs. Yeah. Um, but they were always either just completely improvised or a mixture of stuff from my solo records and my Glock records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Or just whatever. So they were pretty formless and, and I, I used to call it Space Station. Right. Um, and I did that for a couple of years through lockdown yeah. as a streaming thing from a local cafe around the corner from my house in Crouch End. And then started getting asked to do gigs like that. So I started to take it on that way. Yeah. Um, and I toured the Flickr album, the second solo record. I, st- I toured it doing Is that the one with Cher- Cherry Cola on it? Or is no, that the it's, it's the one after that one. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. That first album didn't ever do any gigs for that. Oh, what a shame. Uh, oh, right, yeah, okay. I mean, I will eventually. But what I've realised is that when I do those songs, I need a band. Okay. You know, there needs to be a band playing now, like Cherry Cola. I mean, it's... it's and lo- love comes, love comes in love ways. Comes in ways. What a tune! Oh, I know you've about. said nice things. Honestly, yeah. those oh, nice unreal songs, so yeah. great. I mean, I love your Glock stuff, yeah, and the stuff you did with the Ace and B and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. those tunes, that there's just a, a warmth that you put it on, and it yeah. can. It's just fantastic. Cool. Did you self-produce them, by the way? Yeah. Did you do it at home? Or how did you? Re- Sorry, I know. Oh, actually, gone. I should I should put Gem in this because um, Gem um, recorded the basic tracks. At his place, he's, he's, Gem's got a studio in London. Okay. And so um, the backing tracks for the View from Halfway Down, which is the first one, yeah, and Flicker, the second one, yeah, they were all done at Gem's place, right? Within the same two months, even though the albums are two like a year apart, yeah, um, year or two apart. Uh, so drums, bass, and like a, a drums, bass, and one guitar. Who played the drums? Me. Oh, really? Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, nice one. Honestly, yeah. really, really good. Anyway, sorry, yeah, as you were saying. Um, so we did that in the wake of David Bowie's death, actually. Okay. After he passed away, um, I was chatting to him in my kitchen over a cup of tea and just going like, wow, I just don't know. I feel like I might want to make a solo record, you know, and yeah. might just record some stuff. Um, got all these all these kind of songs that haven't really gone anywhere and they're not really right for ride. They're not, they're not exactly ride stuff. Um, just a bit more folky or something. That's right. Um, and he was like, yeah, come over. I'm not doing anything. You know, I've got until, you know, whenever his next tour started and I ended up going around there for just a few weeks and I'd, I'd go around for a couple hours in the, in the morning, like, you know, we'd get lunch. And 
Did you write them in the studio or were you, no, these you were, took, these brought were the songs like, in? These were all ideas that I was finishing that had been around for ages. Like Cherry Cola was a guitar riff that I'd had since the 90s. Um, really? Yeah, a lot of them were that way. Like Something Like Love or Flicker was the same thing. It's just old riffs. Let's finish these now because, you know, like, yeah, let's finally put them down in a, in a proper form. And they'll be the ones that you've got like 12 demos of. Okay. You try and demo them every couple of years. And yeah. You never quite get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just was like, right. Persevered with time it. Time to actually nail these. And that's yeah. why they're quite, a lot of them are quite folky, rhythm, folky uh, guitar plots because they're, I've had so many, t- so many years to fiddle with them. Yeah, re- yeah, reconfigure. You know, like, yeah. Scarborough Fair kind of thing. Like I was like playing. Golden Brown or Scarborough Fair or those kind of shit. That's why that's what I sit and do when when I've picked my guitar up in the kitchen, I'll just kind of start playing a Paul Simon song or something. Okay, Fo- I'm a bit of a folky, I think. Yeah, and so um, yeah, we just I just decided I'll go to Gems each day. I'll bring one in and I will just put down the arrangement that's going to stay. Right. You know, like just whatever it is, that'll be how it stays. Okay. And then I took. Um, it took him a few months because he went, then went off on tour. But then, like a few months later, he sent me the stems, just so that I've kind of put them in the form for you to work on. So I'd like drum, you know, like the different drums in their own tracks, and then the bass, and then the, whatever guitar is sure, on. Sure. One or two guide vocals, but not much in the way of vocals. And then they were sitting on my hard drive. Um, so that that was 2016, 17, 18. That was all happening. Then, of course, COVID hits. And um, we'd been on a ride tour, so we'd done the the last ride album, finishing off going around the UK, played Manchester on election night. Never been a worse after show <laughs> in the history of the world than the after show when Boris Johnson won that election. Yeah, <clears throat> we'd gone on stage to our our light show was replaced by. A, a big thing just saying fuck Boris <laughs> <laughs> just had that big. Um, and I actually, I actually thought that Corbyn might win it oh. I, was, I was that deluded at the time <laughs> that I thought it was going to happen so I was just really like yeah anyway so we that was the end so that puts it in context time wise end of 2019 then beginning of 2020 we're continuing the same tour mm-hmm. um, go around Europe okay and you're hearing about this thing. There's this. There's this virus coming around, and oh yeah, is it input? Is it is it news or is it just like, you know, one of those silly stories that's going to fade away after a few weeks? But then it like we got back to the UK, and um, actually before the COVID thing really um came on top, um, we had a band meeting and decided to take a little bit of a break. I came in going right, let's do an EP, let's do a, let's do a a live album. Let's, do all this stuff and then it was a bit like we kind of readjusted because um mark had just bought a studio or right. just built a studio okay like a real studio right and he was doing it as a business he's like look like i'd really do with a few months to sort the studio out and to get it up and running and right. to build it into a business right so um we just can okay well that's that's fair enough we'll do that and we'll we'll be doing summer festivals you know, we'll be doing like bits and pieces and then sure. we'll kind of get together after all that's done and we'll, then we'll start writing then. Um, that was sort of that new plan. And then COVID hit. Okay. So we were already kind of winding it down for a bit. Then we were just winding it completely off. And in that vacuum um, is when I, um, in between like 
washing my shopping from my car door and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> and leave it, leave it out outside and, and doom scrolling yeah. for about 23 hours a day for yeah. the other end homeschooling. Oh, gosh. And like buying paddling pools on Amazon. And, you know, remember that summer? Yeah. Um, yeah, in between all that, I was, I just pulled those tracks out and started working on them. And uh, it was sort of like a therapy, I suppose. Well, I'm glad you did. Yeah, nice one. Because they are. They're a, they're a go-to when we, you know, Sunday morning that's, breakfast. That's great to hear. Honestly, yeah. really, really great. Yeah. Um, cool. But we digress. Yeah, your, your vinyl. Yeah. So yeah. your vinyl's coming out on Byte. Is that right? It's actually not. It's, it's um, Byte's is normally the label. Oh. Um, Byte's is doing the digital. Ah. But um, the label it's coming out on is Electronic Sound because they were the ones. So the, have you ever seen a magazine called Electronic Sound? I don't think I have. It looks great. Okay. Um. It's got a very nice monochrome look. Okay. Um, and it, it always do really cool covers. And um, the layout of the whole magazine has got its own its own whole thing. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a magazine celebrating electronic music. Right. And um, they asked me to do a session for them, like a filmed session. Okay. And as Glock. And that ended up being my first performance. So I asked my friend Chris, who does visuals for us inner strings, like psychedelic visuals yeah. um, to be part of that. So to make it a bit more special looking. And so he came along, we, f we filmed the session and it kind of went so well that I I asked them if they'd be up for putting it out and right. they thought about it for a bit and then just said, yeah, we will do it. That's great. Um, so that's, that's it. It was my, the first Glock gig in a way, although it was private. Right. And then since then I've played twice as Glock Um so kind of putting an end to all that jamming thing. Yeah. But st it's still the same setup. It's still me with a guitar, yeah. big pedal board, and then decks as if I was DJing. Okay. But the decks are like, um, the, the backing tracks are like um, now all Gluck stuff. Okay. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah, man. So you'll be taking that out on the road taking and the road. Um, pre order is available on, on that yeah. uh, vinyl now. And if you fancy getting the record or hearing the record or getting tickets to any of the gigs, there's a link tree. I've put it on that bit of paper. All right, I'll put that in the in the in the yeah. um, in the th in the every link's in it. Oh yeah, and it's link tree forward slash Andy Bell Glock. But yeah. I will put that nice one in the uh, in the information at the bottom of this video. Cool. But cool. yeah, well Andy Bell, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Likewise, and, and hanging out and um, good luck with the tour and yeah yeah. Thank good you. luck to you guys, Flex Palace and Pastel as well with a new release. I'm looking forward to the albums, whatever you're putting yep. out next. I yep. will be there listening to it. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Thank you. All right, Andy. Nice that's one. Cool.